In the 1980s, a campaign started that you might be familiar with called Just Say No. Uh, it was a campaign that started with Nancy Reagan during the time when her husband was the president. And she had a passion to educate youth on the danger of using drugs. So she would go around to the different schools and do these different visits and these different talks. And one of the times, a uh, elementary schoolgirl came up to her and said, well, what do I say if someone comes up to me and they offer me drugs? To which Mrs. Reagan said, just say no. And then that is where the campaign started from there. It got its slogan and there's actually been many that have followed since that time with that same effort to try to get youth to say no to drugs. Uh, interestingly, if you were to go research this to look into the effectiveness of these different campaigns, you would find that they actually have not been that effective. Uh, the stats show that there has been no real decrease in drug usage among teens. Uh, we're thankful for people like Mrs. Reagan, right, who tried to make a dent in this problem. But we know that this problem is not going away anytime soon. It's really a very basic, a fundamental issue that we're dealing with, and it's temptation, right? It's temptation to sin. Uh, and in a sinful culture, it's going to be a losing battle. And this issue, of course, is not unique to youth. Uh, it is something that every single one of us faces, temptation, and we will face it our entire lives. But the difference is, with us, it should not be a losing battle. As Christians, we have uh, something far greater. We have so much more than any campaign, right? Any cultural movement that we could come up with. We have everything that we need. Uh, we have God's spirit within us to help us. We have God's word teaching us. We should be able to fight against temptation. And we were, we were reminded of that this week as we studied 2 Samuel 11. If you haven't turned there, you can turn there with me. Um, it wasn't a success story, unfortunately. Uh, but those stories, those accounts are also in there in order to, to, to teach us and to remind us um, what we should do as Christians in this fallen world. Um, so let's read it. It's a familiar story. The account of David and Bathsheba. And hopefully we can learn whatever it is we need to learn in order to really, truly stand firm in the face of temptation. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse one reads, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And that should bring you back, uh, you know, just a quick pause, thinking back, what, you know, what is this talking about? Chapter 10, right? We studied that before Christmas. Um, Israel was at war with the Ammonites, and the Ammonites had fled. And so then some time has passed, and David is saying, all right, we need to pick up where we left off. Uh, so he's ordering his men to go finish that job 
with the Ammonites. And it's springtime. This is a, a favorable time. The conditions are better to go out to war. And so that's often why the kings would join the men at this point. But for whatever reason, David did not. And so let's read verses 2 all the way down to verse 17. It says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Of course, we know David is trying to get Uriah to go home so that he would sleep with his wife and it would appear that the baby that Bathsheba is now pregnant with would be Uriah's and not David's. All right, verse 10. When When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die." And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. The next several verses, we see that there is a messenger that is sent to David, and then David responds back to that messenger. Let's just read the last two verses of the chapter. Verse 26 says... When the wife of Uriah heard that, David, her, that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is a really low point in David's life. Uh, he's been through some hard times before. But this one, he brought on himself. Uh, and it, it didn't just impact him, right? I mean, we, as we read this, we get this picture of Uriah 
this loyal, this faithful man, and he's actually a, an important man in David's army. He's one of, known as one of the 30 mighty men in David's army. And then David sends him off in his own hands with a death sentence. And we see God's commentary on the end. It says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Most literally that reads, it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. As we read this text, you might have read it many times before, uh, there is this appropriate disgust that we should have as we read this account. I mean, we look at it and we're thinking, how did David get here, right? What happened? I mean, this is the man after God's own heart and look at him, you know, how he failed. But as much as we should have that appropriate disgust, I wonder if we should take a step back and think, can we relate more to David than we care to admit? Because, he, you know, he didn't get there with one big bad decision. You know, all of a sudden, he made a big mistake. He got to this point by several compromises. Uh, even outside of this text, I mean, probably long before this, he had been make, making compromises in this area. I mean, what we know of him, he had several wives, which was not God's intention for a marriage. It is meant to be between one man and one woman. So he's, clearly he is already compromising in that area. But just in chapter 11 alone, we see several compromises. And some of them might even seem small at first when you pick them apart one by one. So first in verse one, uh, we see that when kings normally go out to battle, he did not. It's possible, commentaries say, that there's reasons why kings wouldn't go out to battle. Uh, if it's going to put the king in danger, something happens to the king, his army, his people could be worse off if the king went. However, the author makes a point to say, this is the time when kings go out to battle and David did not. So that seems to be his first compromise. Um, you know, maybe it's just if his head was in the game, if he was thinking clearly, he would be thinking, I need to go out and I need to lead my men in this charge. He would be all in. And instead, he stayed back. Obviously, in verse two, we see a compromise. Uh, he is on the roof and he sees a woman, but he doesn't look away. He doesn't just see her, he looks at her. He looks at her and he notices her beauty and this is not his wife. And yet he keeps looking. Another choice, another compromise he makes is to ask about her. Uh, you know, it's not automatically a sin to ask about someone, but he is feeding his desire for this woman that is not his wife. Then he goes ahead and he asks for her to be brought to him. And then he goes all the way and sleeps with her. Um, but that's not where the compromises end. Uh, he doesn't stop there. He goes and he gets Uriah off of the field and basically he deceives him as to why he's off of the field. And that itself is a compromise, just deceiving someone as to what your intentions are. He goes on to try to trick him, to try to manipulate him. And then after that is when he eliminates him, ultimately murdering him. And it is decision after decision taking him the wrong direction. Think of that word picture of falling into sin and how in one sense that could be appropriate. You know, you picture someone high up on a ledge somewhere 
And it's like each decision they make, it's like they're leaning forward a little bit further. And they make another compromise and they're leaning forward a little bit more and then their arms are leaning down. Before you know it, it's like, of course, gravity is gonna pull them down at that point. And it's still their fault. Each decision they made was theirs. But yes, of course, you're gonna fall when you make compromise after compromise. Uh, maybe you can think back to some of those decisions you've made in your life. Maybe the worst decision you made, and it's not something you want to think about, but you could probably, if you were to think back to maybe the days or the weeks or even the years that led up to that, there were decisions that you made that led you that way. There were compromises you made before you ultimately made that fall. Uh, and if that doesn't make you relate to David already, uh, you could just think of the self-justification that human nature just seems to come up with. Uh, we don't know David's motives. Uh, it doesn't give us any hint of his motives, actually. But we can see how easy it is to justify. Just thinking of David, there he is. He, he's thinking, you know, I, I don't want to go out to this battle. I'm tired, right? I just need a break. I just need to stay back this time and get a little bit of rest. I think that would be good for me. Then he gets on the roof. He sees the woman and, you know, he's thinking, who wouldn't look? She's a beautiful human being, of course. I mean, I have to look at her. And, you know, I'm curious, so I'm just going to ask about her. I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, who is she? Who is this woman? And then, you know, I'm curious, would she be into me? Could that happen? And then he has her brought up. And then she's there in front of him. And he's thinking, well, I mean, how can I resist? Uh, God will forgive me. He always forgives. He'll forgive me this time. And then after all that's said and done, he's thinking, I've made a mess. I've got to clean this up. I mean, it'll be so much worse for my kingdom, for my people, if I don't hide this. If, if it is shown, if it is found out, problems are gonna happen. I can't ruin people's lives. I can't, I can't ruin this kingdom. I've got to take care of this. And we know those are bad, bad justifications. Um, but we are also pretty good at making our own bad justifications. Our temptation may be totally different from David's, but we would be missing the boat if we thought we were immune to this process, to the process of making a compromise, which leads us into making another compromise, makes us maybe even feel better about making a worse compromise, and then we end up doing something that we know we shouldn't have done. Um, or the process of self-justification where we start to feel okay about this, this sin that starts pretty little. And we think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And then it allows us to do something else. And then we justify that. And we end up again down a road that we never should have been. We can't excuse David's story thinking, I would never do something like that. We are not above it. It might not be how you would fall, but you could still fall just as hard, um, especially if you were put in just the situation that would most lure you into sin. And that's ultimately what temptation is. It is trying to lure you into sin. James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
So it makes sense that your temptation would be different from David's and different from the person sitting next to you and different from me. All of our temptations, they originate with our own sinful desires, with something that we want. And that's what makes it so tempting is it's we are wanting something that we truly want that is in our sinful nature that we desire. And because we all have sin, we all have sinful desires, and we are all going to have temptation for the rest of our life. It might change over the years. Hopefully we fight temptations and we end up fighting lesser temptations rather than the same old big temptations, but we will continue to have temptation for as long as we are on this earth. So we've gotta be ready to fight what it is that would draw us. We need to be on guard, uh, knowing what it is that entices us. In James 1.14, where it says that we're enticed. Uh, that's this fishing term. What would hook you? What would bait you? What would be that for you? In a general sense, uh, what are the heart issues, the big things, the, the path that would be dangerous for you to get on, that would lead you the wrong direction? And then the specific things, like today, what could tempt you? Tomorrow, what could tempt you to sin? Next week, those general things and specific things. We need to be in tune with what types of weaknesses would bring us down. So point number one, I said it this way, identify your weakness. Identify your weakness. We should start where David leaves us, uh, you know, sexual temptation. Is that your weakness? Are you tempted by intimacy with anybody other than your spouse in any type of way? Are you willing to make any compromises in that area? Um, or maybe it's actually withholding sex from your spouse where that is your temptation. Or maybe it's not being the kind of wife you should be in other ways where you know you should be this kind of godly wife and you're just not doing it or the kind of sister in Christ you should be, or the kind of mom you should be, or maybe it's heart issues, um, worry or discontent, or uh, you're grumbling in your heart about things. Maybe you're not willing to stand up for Christ. I mean, what are those issues that tempt you in a big sense, in a general sense, a heart way, but then on a specific level as well? Maybe something you're already giving into, and maybe it's something that no one would ever know about you because it's deep within your heart. We gotta think it through. Uh, we gotta make sure that we are aware of what it is, aware of how it manifests itself so that when it's there, we see it. So that we are not deceived. So that Satan, who is looking for someone to devour, doesn't sneak up on us with something enticing. Uh, kind of like how this, this animal I learned about catches its prey. There's this animal called the alligator snapping turtle. So it's just monstrous turtle kind of thing, that lives in fresh water. And the way it gets its uh, food is it lies down on the, the bottom of a pond or a river, and it has its mouth, its jaws wide open, waiting for fish or anything, I guess it will eat anything in its path, waiting for it to come by. And what it does is it has this, this tongue with, at the very end, a pink little wiggly appendage type thing that looks like a worm. And so it baits its prey, you know, the fish or whatever, come, and as soon as it gets close to this worm-like thing, it snaps, it closes its jaws, and it captures its prey. And it does this in this deceiving kind of way. It masks something to be different than what it is or makes it seem worth it. And that's actually how the Proverbs describe the lure of adultery. It says in Proverbs chapter seven, verses 21 through 23, it says, 
With much seductive speech, she, the adulteress, persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. You can see that effect of the, the massive, massive turtle's tongue appendage, right? It's luring in its bait. It's making them forget that there could be a consequence. It's compelling them to come in. And with David, all it took was a look. I mean, all it took was seeing the woman and it lured him to come in. But it's not just with sexual sin that we are compelled. It's with any sin, with any and every sin for a moment we are compelled that it makes sense to do. We are enticed, we are persuaded it sounds like a good idea. We forget that there are consequences. We follow our flesh and then boom, we're caught and we're sinning in that moment. We need to be more aware of what would draw us into sin. Partly because uh, that awareness is the kind of humility that we need to have in order to fight temptation well. There's a passage if you wanna turn with me, it's one of the most important and direct passages on this topic, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 12 through 13, it really starts with this aspect of humility, really recognizing that we have weakness. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12 through 13 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We should know that we don't stand in such a way that we cannot fall. We can, and we might, unless we realize verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, meaning your temptations aren't unusual, and they're not unfightable, but God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, God is going to help you through temptation, but it will still be hard. We are still going to need to endure it, meaning this bearing up despite difficulty and suffering. It's still gonna be hard. And David did not have this mindset. He was not thinking, all right, I gotta be expecting temptation, I gotta be looking for it, I gotta be expecting to, to see it and to see that way out and to be able to endure it and to fight it. Instead, what we see with David, he saw something, he wanted it, and he took it. As you would just glance through the first couple of verses, and we just see these stark verbs that show us what it is that David does. It says in verse two, Middle of verse two, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Verse three, and David sent and inquired about the woman. Look at verse four. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. He saw, he sent, he took, and he lay. It was like, one active, active choice after another. There was no struggle. He was not battling his flesh. He was not battling his sin. He did not put up a fight. 
And if we want to overcome our own temptations, we've got to know that it is going to take a fight. We are going to have to fight sin. And really, it's like we're fighting ourselves, right? Because our sinful temptations come from our sinful desires, which originate with us. It's what we want. So we have to fight our sin, and we have to really be willing to fight ourselves. And that is especially hard. Uh, Point number two, we need to expect a battle. Expect a battle. If at any point David was thinking along these lines, this would have gone so different. It would have been hard. It would have been a struggle for him, but he would have seen that way out and he would have been able to endure through it. So if we're going to set ourselves up for success, we need to anticipate it being hard. Uh, What it's going to feel like is feeling like a little fish with a hungry little stomach and we're swimming along in that river and we see that little worm-like thing and we are hungry. We're gonna want it. We're gonna want to give in. But it's not like, you know, a poor little fish, um, you know, they're hungry and they can't help it. God doesn't leave us there with our own hungry stomachs without anything to help us. He is there with us. He says he will help us. He says he will make it doable. He puts the third person of the Trinity within us to help us fight it. He will give us a way out. And it is not like he is keeping us from good things. He is helping us to stay away from bad things. It is good for us. But we gotta know that it's gonna feel hard. Selfishness is gonna be so much easier to give into outbursts of anger, impatience, all of that is going to feel so justified in the moment. Gossiping is going to feel so satisfying. Complaining is going to feel so appropriate. Sleep is going to feel so much better than whatever it is that we should be doing. I mean, fighting temptation feels like war. That's the way 1 Peter 2.11 says it. It says, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You've got to be willing to abstain, to say no, and no, it's not going to be easy because it's going to feel like war to your soul. When we're outside of the temptation, you know, we're sitting here with our Bibles open. It doesn't really feel like it's going to be a battle. It feels like, okay, it's going to come and, and I'm going to be able to fight it. Uh, kind of like the way I feel that last week in December when I'm sitting there at, you know, maybe the fireplace and I got the music on and got my journal out or my phone notes or something and I'm thinking of New Year's resolutions, right? I'm thinking, all right, what do I need to do to make my life, you know, everything it's supposed to be? I am going to be the best Heather Pace that I can be and you know what? Nothing is going to stop me, right? There is absolutely nothing. No problem. Yep, I got this. And then, of course, you know, February hits. You know the stats, right? New Year's resolutions, I don't even tell you. They mostly fail, right? But what if? What if for every single one of those resolutions, I expected a battle? If I pictured February, March, April, and so on, if I pictured what was going to come my way, and then I thought through, okay, so when this happens, and this is going to be hard, this is what I'll do. And, and this is how I'll work around this, and this is how I'll work harder at this. If I really thought through every single resolution in that way, how much more successful would I be? And you know, nobody's got time for that with New Year's resolutions. But when it comes to fighting sin, to fighting temptation, it is worth the time. 
We have got to set ourselves up for success and think ahead. What is the battle gonna be like and how will I really fight it when it comes my way? Of course, accountability is obvious. You know, you should have somebody in your life who knows what it is that you struggle with, somebody who's gonna ask you prayer, of course, you should be doing that. You should be praying on a regular basis about what the areas that you know you are weak in, uh, maybe even praying up if you know that a temptation is probably going to be coming at a certain point. Also, we should be thinking rightly about our sin, uh, your specific sin. Have you compromised so much that you don't think it's a big deal anymore? that you think, you know, this is just what women deal with. This is just what people deal with who are at my stage of life. It's not that big of a deal. But if it is sin, it is offensive to God. Um, a passage I often go to to remind me of just the, the seriousness we should take daily sin is Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says that there are six things that the Lord hates. And then it lists several things that are just daily kinds of things. Having haughty eyes, you know, having a kind of pride, a lying tongue, a false witness who breathes out lies, one who sows discord among brothers. These are daily kinds of things and God says that he hates them. We've got to take our own sin, our own weaknesses, the things we fall to, we need to take them serious if God takes them serious. We should also remember that God sees all of it. Every single compromise we make, God sees it. In 1 Samuel 11, God seems pretty silent. We don't hear his voice coming out from a cloud or a bush. We don't hear him whispering to David, David, stop. Don't you know what you're doing is wrong? You should know better. He says nothing. But we get to the end and we see he was there all along. God saw all of it. As we get to the next chapter, we're gonna hear more of God's thoughts on it, but it is enough to hear that last line in the text, which says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. When you get to your temptation, when you are wanting to do something, don't expect to hear from God, hey, don't do that. You should know better. Know that he is there. He does see it. And you don't want to get to the end of that and know that what you did displeased the Lord. It's also good to remember that the pain of self-denial is less than the pain of regret. The pain of self-denial is less than the pain of regret. Yes, it hurts to say no to ourselves. We don't want to. That, that's painful. But it is so much less than that pain that comes with just that regret inside of us, just knowing that we displease the Lord from the consequences that come from that. Even if it's just knowing that we're gonna to answer to God at the end of our life for the thing that we did, it would be far better to take the path of self-denial. And then even if you find yourself in sin, the sooner you turn, the less pain of regret. If only David had kept that in mind, and that really might be the most painful lesson we learn from this account. He had so many opportunities to turn around and he did not take them. We see that in the first couple of verses, uh, when he saw Bathsheba, he should have stopped looking. He should have turned right then. And then he asked for her. 
The time in which he, he was curious about her, right? Just asking about her. He had time right then to repent. His people are going, they're going to go ask about her. He could be thinking at this point, wait a minute, this is a bad idea. Why am I even thinking about this? She's not my wife. He could have turned. Then they got there and they said that this woman was married. This is the wife of Uriah. At that point, he should have repented. This is not right. She is married. And then he sent for men to go get her. More time went on. He had time in those moments to say, wait a minute, this is wrong. I must repent. Even when she's standing there in front of him. No, I can't do this. I've got to turn around and repent. And he didn't. But even after all of that was said and done, yikes, I made a horrible mistake. I should repent. That's when he should have turned around. And instead, he got Joab to bring Uriah to him. He tries to trick him and deceive him. I think this is just another key time he should have repented. Let's read verse nine. We see this interaction between David and Uriah. It says, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Oh. Uriah's uprightness in that moment. I mean, that should have pricked David's conscience. This godly, loyal man won't even go and sleep with his own wife. That's how godly he is. And I went and slept with his wife. I have got to turn around. I've got this all wrong. But instead, he keeps going. He tries to trick Uriah again. And then a whole night passes for him to think about this for him to then turn. But we see in verse 14, it says, after this whole night, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David ignored time after time, opportunity after opportunity to do the right thing and to turn around, and he didn't. It led to adultery, it led to murder, and it led to a whole bunch of consequences. If we're gonna learn from his mistake, we need to repent right away. That's point number three, repent right away. Thinking of David, I mean, each time he didn't repent, probably his heart got more hard. And that made it harder to repent the next time. Uh, certainly the momentum of the situation got going worse and worse in the wrong direction, making it harder to repent. Uh, and the consequences got worse, even as chapter 11 goes on. I mean, at first, if he were to repent, he could be known as a luster, then an adulterer. He got someone pregnant. Okay, that's punishable by death. Then he's a deceiver. He's a tricker, a manipulator. And then he becomes a murderer. And that is punishable by death. A hard heart, uh, momentum towards the wrong path, increasing consequences. 
all of that can follow our own sin if we do not repent right away. So picture this playing out, uh, you know, right after you sinned, you just noticed you did the wrong thing. At that moment, that very moment, don't justify your actions. Don't think, oh, this is not that big of a deal. I don't know. I mean, God will forgive me. Repent, turn and confess to God. This was wrong. I should not have done it. Ask for forgiveness from someone if you need to, but turn in that moment that you realize it. You might even catch yourself mid-sin, right? You're in the middle of doing the wrong thing. At that moment, turn around. It's not too late. Turn around right then and there. Or maybe you see yourself walking towards sin. You're being tempted. You're being lured. You're thinking, ah, this would be the easier thing to do. That's when you need to expect that battle. No, it's going to be hard, but find that way out. Turn from it as soon as you can. Repent before you even fall into sin. If you do anything but that, what are you training your heart to do? Are you training your heart to think that you can't fight it? That next time when it comes around, you just can't, it's just too hard? Are you training your heart to think this isn't that big of a deal? Uh, that the sin is not that bad to God? One of the worst things that we can think is, I'm already in sin, uh, what does it matter? I mean, I've already gone this far, what if I go a little further? Whatever way that we trick ourselves into thinking it's, you know, I'm already at second base, I might as well go to third. No, the sooner you repent, the less sin you will have, the less momentum you will have that is going in the wrong direction. And really, if you repent right away, uh, it kind of moves the momentum in the right direction. You end up gaining these spiritual muscles that become stronger. Uh, you keep a softer and a more sensitive heart when you repent and you repent right away. So if you are in sin now, repent. Repent right now. If you committed sin sometime this morning or sometimes yesterday, repent, repent right away as soon as you see it. And what's so good is when you do, God is merciful. Proverbs 28 verses 13 through 14 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. If you harden your heart, it will not go well for you. If you conceal your transgression, you will not prosper. But if you confess and you forsake your sin, you will obtain mercy. And it doesn't matter if it is adultery or what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount is like committing adultery in your heart, lust. It doesn't matter if it's murder or if what Jesus said is like murdering in your heart, having that ungodly anger. Doesn't matter if it's sins of the heart, if it's sins of the mouth, if it's sins of omission, like the things that you know that you should do and you don't do it whatever it is, it is worth turning from as soon as you possibly can. Hopefully the account of David and Bathsheba spurs us on in that way. My hope is that we would leave this text specifically humble and hopeful. Humble because we realize that we could be drawn into temptation. We are not above it. We are not immune to temptation. Humble because we know that at times we will need 
to repent, but hopeful. Hopeful because we know that we do not have to give into temptation. That if we are willing to battle it, we can endure it. God will help us. And really, he's, he's given us all the tools that we need to, do, to have to fight temptation. And he expects us to. So with a, a humility and a hope, we should do all we can to move forward to fight whatever temptation it is that comes our way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word uh, that teaches us time after time when we read it. Uh, we start afresh this year reading through the Bible, and it, it continues to teach us and to equip us to choose right. And here we are reading a story that we've probably read over and over again, uh, but I pray that it would impact us afresh. Uh, that we wouldn't look down on David in such a way that we think uh, we're nothing like him. But instead, it would make us humble, realizing that we too have temptation. It might be different from his. Um, it might be something that no one even sees, but we all have temptation because we all have sinful desires that draw us away from being who you want us to be, from being obedient to you in all the ways that you call us to. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't leave uh, discouraged. Um, instead, we would have this hope. We would have this hope that we can fight temptation, that you've given us all we need. I mean, we have something David didn't have. We have his example that can teach us. So Lord, I pray that we would not be enticed into sin, um, that we would see this, this bad example that's in scripture for us uh, that is meant to be there so that we will not desire evil as they did as 1 Corinthians 10 says. And so Lord, help us uh, to take this example and to change because of it, to fight temptation, to stay far away from any kind of sin that would lead us down a bad path. Help us, Lord, help 2019 to be the best year we've ever had in the sense of fighting temptation. Maybe we be more godly women because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.